Turn with me to Revelation 3, 14, if you would. Now, while you're turning there, let me, I'm going to give you a little history of Dover Assembly. Now, you'll see how this ties into the sermon in a minute. But if you're new here, this, is, this will be new for you. This church, Dover Assembly, has been around in various forms, different leaderships for 80 plus years. The purpose, now if we study this church's history, in 1930, a gentleman by the name of Charles Crone held evangelistic tent meetings in Rossville. His purpose in holding those meetings was to what? Reach people, reach lost people. From this meeting and his continued outreach, this church was formed. What was happening was people were getting saved. Now they needed a church, needed the church to grow and disciple in. And so this church was born and became a functional church in 1940. What was the purpose in 1940? To reach lost people and have a home from which we're able to disciple them. And that vision has not changed in 80 plus years. Buildings change, paint changes, carpet changes, scenery changes, people change. But the vision and the goal is the same. Now I put those signs up. How many, how many remember? I know you can cheat and look at the signs. But that's basically the vision of the church. It's just five steps. Connect with people outside. Grow them evangelistically. Help people to get involved in service. Now you go and minister to other people in the world and you spend time in worship. That's why this church exists. Each of those steps describes a pattern of discipleship. Now we're gonna talk about those five things at a later date, but not today. The reason I did that is because if we lose that vision and goal, we will become like this next church, the church in Laodicea. Here's a church that had lost its vision, and its reason for being. And we see that rather than being a change, a change agent in the community designed to win people, they, this church now became a group that was focused more on themselves than everybody else. Now, most of you probably know the name Laodicea. You know the, the church Laodicea. You probably know the reference of Jesus saying, oh, if you're either hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's... Uh, that comes from Laodicea, and we'll hit that in a little bit. So Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and wear clothes, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was about 45 miles southeast of the church in Philadelphia and about 100 miles east of the church in Ephesus. 
And if you remember that pattern we had, there it is. That's how the letters went around. They hit the first church, and now we're at the last church, Laodicea. Laodicea had a great Roman road ran right through the center of it. It made it an important center of trade and communication. It was a wealthy city. And the wealth, it came partially from black wool, as well as other things. It became known as a wealthy center to surrounding countries. Other people would come to this city because of the wealth and the prosperity of it. However, it's not known for doing anything notable. Nothing of note or consequence actually happened in it. No achievements to distinguish this city from anybody else. It's a city that had learned to adapt themselves to what was going on in the world around them. It became like the frog in the kettle. However the world went, that's how they were going. Nothing in the city was worth struggling for. They had a go-along to get-along mentality. The city didn't stand for anything zealously. They had a, a peace-at-all-cost mentality. In other words, whatever you believe is good for you, whatever I believe is good for me. You have your truth, I have my truth. That was the city, and this whole mindset now had filtered into the church, and the church had the same thinking. This church suffered no persecution. It had no obvious false teachers. They had no problems from within. They had no problems from without. Everything was going great for them. Everybody would have been like them, would have liked to have been like them. But what had happened was they simply succumbed to the enjoyment of everyone around them. They lived for themselves. Hey, if it brings us enjoyment, that's good. The mentality always leads to eventual decay or destruction. If it feels good, do it. How many remember that phrase from a couple of decades ago? And that phrase has led to the moral decline of this and other countries. So let's start at verse 14 and see what Jesus is saying. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen. Now we all use the term amen. We know it. The definition means so be it. Or in other words, we acknowledge the fact that what is sure and right. We pray in Jesus' name, so be it. It's true and it's right. It's a human response to, to divine action. We acknowledge that what God says or does is sure and right. How many when you read God's word believe everything that's written in there? Because it's sure and it's right. So we say amen to the God's word. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. We pray for needs. We pray for healings. We pray for families and a whole litany of things. Why do we pray? Because the Bible tells us to intercede for other people. The Bible says that God is a healer. The Bible says that God is the one who restores. The Bible says when we pray, God hears and God answers. We pray because the Bible tells us to. And when we pray, we pray because we know that what we're praying for is right. We pray for God to intercede. We pray for God to heal. And when we say amen, we're just agreeing with what God's word already says. That it is sure and right. Now he's saying that to prepare them for what he's going to say next. In other words, he's saying, okay, you guys say amen. I am the amen. I am the final authority is basically what he's saying. And then he comes to the next part of that verse. 
says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the thing that is sure and right. He is the faithful and true witness. And the Bible says he's the ruler of all creation. Therefore, he has authority to say whatever he wants to say, to do whatever he wants to do, and write whatever he wants to write. And so he's saying to them, everything I say is true. I have the authority to rebuke you. I have the authority to say the next sentence. And the next sentence is, I know your deeds. John's used this phrase before. He's simply telling the church, I've seen what you've done in my name. How many when you work at your office or wherever you work, always have your boss looking over your shoulder? How many would drive you crazy if that was the case? How would you act differently if there was a camera on you at work and you knew someone was gonna watch that video? Would you work differently? Jesus is saying, I know what you did. I know all these things you said you've done in my name. I've seen everything. The Bible says even the things that are covered, God's gonna reveal at some point. That should make us pause for a second. Everything we do in secret, the Bible says God's gonna reveal openly. There's nothing God does not know. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. Not only will he expose your deeds, He'll expose your motive for the deed you did. And it's possible to do a right thing in a wrong manner or with a wrong motive. How many know that? When the Bible says we're not to judge other people, it's not, we're not to judge their action, we're not to judge their motive. If someone is sinning, the Bible says if someone sins, you can go up there and correct them, bring them back to Christ. So you're judging their action. What you can't do is you can't judge the motive behind their action. If I get up here and I preach Man, a firestorm of a sermon, but I do it because I want to do it, and I love it, and I just get all kinds of thrills out of it. The sermon may be right, but my motives are all wrong, and that, for that, I'm going to be judged. God's going to reveal those motives, and when he's looking at their deeds, he says, I know your deeds, but more importantly, I know the motives behind your deeds, because he goes on and says, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you all know I'm a coffee guy. Coffee's got to be hot. Cold coffee is not coffee. <laughs> Flavored coffee is not coffee. That's dessert. But the worst taste is lukewarm coffee. And I like, you know, I like milk gotta be really cold man it's gotta be ice cold milk if it's sitting out and it's warm blah. when someone is spiritually cold the Bible refers to them as not being a Christian not being saved when you become a Christian what happens usually man you become excited you become on fire for God right you're excited what things are gonna happen next and you become the most zealous follower you can you can imagine so they go from being cold not saved to now they're hot, they're saved, they're on fire for God, they're, everything they're doing is for God. And what happens? They're beginning to get cold again. The zealousness and the excitement about God is kind of wearing off. 
They left the zealous part behind and they're drifting back to being cold again. Now that doesn't mean Christ would rather prefer someone to be spiritually cold, which means not saved. God's trying to tell them, look, if you're cold, it means you're not saved. You can be saved. And if you're hot, you're on fire for God, that's great. But if you're in the middle, you think you're saved, you think you're doing things for God, but you're not. You're not cold because you said a prayer five years ago or 20 years ago, but now you're not doing anything for God. You're living how you want to live, adapting to the world around you. You think you're saved, but you're not. Now, the terms hot and cold are kind of unique to this generation, at least currently. To be spiritually hot or cold is something that American Christians are familiar with. I don't think these were common terms for this church. But it's just another way of saying lukewarm. In other words, useless. They were useless in the kingdom of God. They were useless because they were complacent, self-satisfied, and indifferent to the real issues of the faith in Christ and discipleship. Billy Graham, when he used to say he would always say, I'm not here to win converts, I'm here to win disciples. Anybody can be a convert, anybody can say a prayer and walk away. And if you know the, the parable of the sower and the seed, three-fourths of them aren't going to be following Christ in about a year. So it's easy to say the prayer. The next step is discipleship and growth and service and worship. And this church had lacked all of that. They were doing nothing for the kingdom of God. Laodicea had a poor water supply that sometimes would make you sick and would induce vomiting. So he's using an example that the people would know. We did a missions trip to Mexico years ago. And you know when you go to Mexico, they don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. So everything we had was bottled water. But some of us got kind of sick. And we're thinking, how did that happen? And while my roommate and I were kind of laying in bed just recovering from this, I happened to look up out of my daze and see that the person who was making up the room was washing out the water pitcher with tap water and then filling it up with bottled water. So you had a little bit of trace of the bottled water in there. And you know what? That little bit of trace in that pitcher made a bunch of people sick. So it doesn't take a whole lot of sin to make you sick. It could take a little bit. And that, I'm sure that lady thought nothing of it. But if you're not ready for it, you're not prepared for it, it's going to make you sick. So this, this church in Laodicea, the water supply they had, had lukewarm water and they had the same type of problem. They weren't sure where the direction of the water came from, but in either case, if it arrived lukewarm, the townspeople knew it was full of bacteria and they knew it was going to make them sick. So Jesus is using an example that they would understand. And what was happening was the church was now assuming room temperature with the rest of the town. We're supposed to be on fire. We're supposed to be hot for God and ready for God. We should be different than the rest of the world. This church became like the rest of the world. There was no difference. One commentary says it this way. Christ detects a Laodicean attitude of compromise, one that seeks easy accommodation and peace at any cost, 
With such a condition, he must deal harshly. In other words, Christ must deal harshly. So the phrase, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Water made them sick, so they were familiar with vomiting. They knew the seriousness of the condition. These people didn't oppose Jesus. They weren't against Jesus. But they didn't do anything to draw close to him either. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. Yeah, he, he's a savior. Do you, do you really study? No, I, I, I trust Jesus. They claimed to believers, be believers, but they were not doing God's will in any area. Verse, seven, uh, verse 17 says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. How many of you Americans especially sometimes equate prosperity with God's blessing. That doesn't mean God can't bless you. You can have a lot of nice things from God's blessing. But just because we have them doesn't necessarily mean it's a blessing from God. There's a lot of rich, sinful people in the world. And this church was thinking, hey, I have all, we have all this money, we have all these things. This must mean we are blessed by God. And Jesus is saying, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You have nothing of spiritual value. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was the center of commerce. And this prosperity seemed to be the cause of the lukewarmness. Hey, this, things are going well. I'm financially good. I have a lot of things. I'm just going to take it easy. I'm not going to press in. I'm not going to rock the boat. Things are going pretty well. Jesus said, you, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. The worst part of this was the folks didn't even realize where they were because they, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought that everything, we have no persecution, we have no problems, we have no false teachers. We're, we seem to be doing everything right. There's nothing bad happening to us, so it must mean that God's blessing us. To those churches, it must have appeared, as this is the church to be and all the other churches around that map, they look at this church and they think, wow, they got everything going for them. Maybe I should go over there. They have material possessions, so they must be blessed by God. He must be happy with their life if they have all this stuff. The equal and opposite reaction would be necessary. In other words, if they have it and they're blessed by God, if I don't have it, I must not be blessed by God. You ever talk to someone who doesn't believe they're sick, but you know that they are? And the thing I'm thinking about maybe is like an eating disorder, anorexia. I was watching a special the other day, just a real quick clip on, remember the Carpenters, Richard and Karen Carpenter? I used to love that group. And when, when Karen died, I was shocked that she you know, had anorexia. And it, when you have something like that, the person who has it generally doesn't think that they're sick. They think that what they're doing is right. So right that they actually die from it. And what was happening in this church is they thought everything was going well and no matter what was said to them, well, that can't be right because we're blessed by God. We have all these great things. They were convinced in their own minds that they were fine. When in reality, Jesus says, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
The first two words, wretched and pitiful, describe their condition. The last three describe why they are that way. The word wretched was used to describe life after everything one owns has been destroyed or plundered by war. In other words, the whole city gets wiped out by war. That's wretched. And the Bible says they were pitied by God because of that. You're destitute and you're plundered and you're pitied by God because you're poor, blind, and naked. Poor means to take away the analogy of the wealth equals blessing. In other words, your wealth does not indicate spiritual blessing. So that means you're poor spiritually. Blind to describe your spiritual condition. They're blind to the truth. You ever talk to someone that they, you just can't convince them of, of truth? The Bible says the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the gospel of Christ. When you talk to someone about Christ and they just don't get it, the Bible says it's because the enemy's blinded them. They can't understand it. And this church was in that position. They can't understand why Jesus is mad at them. Everything seems to be going good. And the last word is naked. It means they are no longer clothed in Christ's righteousness. So what's that mean? It means they're out. Rapture happens, they're not making it. And even today, churches have to fight the idea and natural progression of this type of mentality. Every church, if we're not constantly on guard, will eventually fall into this rut. We will fall into the, the rut of blessings equal material wealth. Look at every major denomination. Every one of them started preaching, started out preaching the gospel. They were formed to spread the gospel of Christ throughout the world. Now, most of them have fallen away from that. And now they are more into what is best for society and social gospel rather than the gospel of Christ. It's just a natural progression. If we don't focus on why we're here as a church, it will happen to us as well. A lot of churches think they're fine. And even worse, they think they're doing God's will because of their outward appearances. What's the Bible say? That people will think they're doing God a favor when they kill you. These churches and believers aren't rocking the boat. They're not calling for spiritual transformation. They're not even telling people that they're sinners in need of a savior. Therefore, as a church, they're useless. They're a great social club, maybe help you out. But for eternity, they have no benefit for eternity. Now we've been around 80 plus years. It's a milestone for any church. But it should also be a call for self-examination. Are, you, are we still calling for God's will to be done here? Are we still fulfilling God's original purpose? We started out salvation of souls, discipleship. Are we still doing that? We still, do we still have a burning desire to see people brought to Christ? Do we still have the, the sense of urgency that's required as Christians? We did a, a sermon on hell years ago. When you think about what hell is really like, 
it should really motivate you to talk to other people. How many know who uh, Penn and Teller, uh, comedians or magic guys from, they're both atheists, and I think it's uh, Teller, I can't, the, the bigger guy. He said he doesn't believe in Christianity, he said, because if it were true, and if hell were true, something the effect that I would crawl across broken glass to tell the next person about it, if it were true. That's when somebody doesn't believe it. He says, if it's true, what are Christians doing to do it? I don't see them doing that kind of stuff to save people from going to hell. Are we still doing all we can do to reach and transform our community? Or are we becoming like our community? Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so you become rich and wear and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. In scripture, a refining fire is almost as, always associated with suffering or testing. Isaiah 48.10 says, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Zechariah 13.9, This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. When gold's in the fire, what happens? All the junk floats to the top. And the contaminants that are in the gold float to the top. And you can skim them off. How many of you had turkey? And how many of you had fat on the top of your nice turkey gravy? <laughs> you skim the fat off, right? You put it in the fridge and it, and it gels and you have the fat part, the oily part, and then you have the good gravy, right? You skim off the bad stuff. When, we worked in, when I worked in Pittsburgh, I, one of my jobs in college was they were building a new mall in Pittsburgh. And actually, it's funny, the mall has not actually closed since then, but this was 1979, 1980. They were building this mall, and they built it on top of a slag pile. How many know what a slag pile is? It was steel. Pittsburgh was a steel town. And all the junk they got from the steel, it was called slag, and they would dump it in this one area, in this huge area full of slag. And they built this mall on top of the slag pile. They can't, you can't grow anything on it. You can't do anything with it other than build something on it. When God puts you in the fire, he says, I want you to go in the fire because I want to get rid of all the stuff in your life that you need to get rid of. What happens when we as, as believers are refined? Our faith is built up and God's ultimate goal through the fire is to increase our faith. God wants this in every church to increase our faith. But you know what he's telling them? He's telling them that maybe you need some persecution. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. When times are tough, we press in. When times are easy, not so much. And I think you mentioned this in class today, there's two types of trials. The trials that God puts us in to refine us, to get us focused on Him, and the trials that come because we are focused on God and pressing in. If you're on fire and you're doing great things for God, you can expect opposition to that. 
Something that's designed to keep your mind off of what you were doing. We're praying for revival. We're praying for souls. We had a testimony of healing last week. Awesome. But this week, all this stuff is starting to come out. The enemy's starting to attack different things. Enemy's doing his work. Why? Because we had a testimony of what God is doing. Marion gave her testimony on a Wednesday night, and like the next week, she got sick. So you can be doing everything right for God, and especially when you are doing things right for God, and you're on fire for God, things are going to get tough because God wants us to keep our focus on Him. The Bible says He's our healer. He's our provider. He will do battle for us. All these things God is in control of, and most of the stuff that happens to us, we're not in control of, but God is. That's when we press in. It's easy to get distracted by the things that are going on around us and maybe stop praying and stop reading and stop doing things you were normally doing in order to focus on whatever this issue might be. Sometimes when life gets easy, we let your relationship slide. This is the perfect time when things are going well to spend time in building your relationship. Hey, things are going great. Press in. Nothing's coming up. Press into God. Trust him. He goes on to say, after the white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Garments in scripture are symbols of righteousness. Revelation 19.6 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Isaiah 61.10, I greatly delight in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. What Jesus is saying here, once you press in and, and overcome complacency and uselessness and your faith now increases, now you need to exercise that faith by doing righteous deeds. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So it's not just knowing. James says, you know, if you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't do anything with it, you wasted your time. So in other words, when we do things for God, other people should see what we do for God and be drawn to God because of it. Because it says, let other people see your good deeds and then they will praise your Father in heaven. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? You can say all day long you believe in Christ, but if you don't live like it, you might want to check your salvation. The Bible says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. James 2.26 says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It doesn't mean that what you do gets you into heaven. It means that what you do shows that you're already on your way to heaven. When we look back on what it took to start and build this church and compare to where it is now, that's faith in operation. We can see the, the tangible evidence of the faith of 80 years ago to bring us where we are today. And we're going to need that same type of faith to go the next 80 years if God tarries. The folks who started this church didn't sit around just waiting for God to do something. OK, 
okay, Lord, build us a place. No, they prayed about it. They did what they needed to do. And God honored that faith and that, those actions and brought about what we have today. Do we still do the same thing? It's some, you know, the more prosperous you are, the less we have to trust God for things. How many found that to be true? If you struggle paycheck to paycheck and you got to trust God for your next paycheck, your next meal, it's a lot different than if you have the money to buy it now. I don't have to trust God for my next meal. I got, I got money in the bank. Maybe it causes us to risk everything to move forward. And the question here is, are we afraid of losing our comfort to step out in faith? I looked this up. In 1947, the net worth of this church was $2.70. Board members took an offering from themselves to bring the balance up to five bucks. And the church had a debt of $250. They called a pastor and then paid him 40 bucks a week plus $11 a week for rent. So $51 per week for a church that had $5 to its name and a $250 mortgage. God met every need. The challenge isn't about getting or giving money, but getting into a right relationship with God to trust him for whatever's next. Isaiah 55 verse one says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come take your choice of wine or milk, it's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen, I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. John 4.10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. That's spiritual nourishment that God wants us to have. We have the spiritual nourishment, which six, uh, Matthew 6.33 says, do all the things that God asks you to do. God will meet your needs. God will meet what you need to do. And the Bible says that gold is also equated with faith. 1 Peter 1.7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. Revelation 3.18, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Laodicea was known for a particular type of eye salve. I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother, my dad's mom, my dad's dad left when he was two, so it was just her and three boys. And this was during the Depression, so they had to, she made, she would make this salve. I don't know what it was. And they would go, my, my dad and his brothers would go door to door selling this salve to the neighbors for, uh, you know, a dime or a nickel, whatever it was. And everyone liked it. it. It worked. I have no idea what she did to make it, but that was something that if you ask my dad, about the salve, he would tell you all the stuff that they made. And so this town had some type of salve that they used for their eyes, and he's using a term that they're familiar with. They know what this salve is. And he's saying, you need the salve because you are blind to your spiritual condition. You think everything's right, and you think everything you see is what God wants you to have. God wanted them to put spiritual salve on their eyes so they can actually see the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I quoted this before, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They knew that their medical eye salve was well known in the town 
and was beneficial to those who needed it for, the, for their sight. But God's saying, now you need spiritual staff because you can't see spiritual truth. You are blinded to what God wants to do. You're blinded to what the Bible says. You're blinded in every way of being a Christian because you think that I said a prayer 20 years ago or I go to church now and again and you're saved. And Jesus says, no, you need to open your spiritual eyes and see your true condition. You are not in a relationship with me and you need to get in a relationship with me. Revelation 3.19 says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Every time God challenges us, it's always to bring us back. It's never to push us away. It's always designed to get our attention. And even though the letter was kind of harsh, it's done in a way to encourage the people to come back. That it wasn't too late. Now it could be too late at a future date if they died in, in this state or if the rapture would have happened in this state or today. You know, I, we listen to Tiff videos a lot and he's always saying no one can say they can make this decision tomorrow because you don't have a guarantee of tomorrow and the more you put God off, the easier it's gonna be to keep putting him off. And he's saying, look, I'm rebuking you, I'm challenging you, I'm correcting you, but I'm doing it because I want you to come back. I wanna get your attention. How many of you parents rebuked and disciplined your kids? You do that in hopes that they don't make bad choices as they get older. You want them to grow up to be functional, good adults. So you make them, you do correction and rebuke while they're little and you can mold their character. So when they're adults, they have that molding. We don't, we don't crush them. We don't, we don't crush their spirits, but we want to get them back on track. And the word he uses here for love is phileo, which means to have affection for it's not necessarily a lesser term than agape, which is unconditional love. But he wants them to see now that the choice is up to them. God's offering this love to this church. God's waiting for them to respond, but the choice is going to be theirs. Verse 20, it says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I never thought about this before, but think about it. For this church, Christ was outside. He wasn't inside. He was outside. He was wanting to come back in, knocking on the door for this church. And the church wasn't letting them in. They had all the programs going. They were doing everything. They were functioning as a, an organization, but without any help from God. Remember I asked that question, it's tough. If the Holy Spirit left our church, would we notice? Man, I hope so. Well, this church didn't notice. The Holy Spirit left their church and they just kept on moving. Never even noticed. But if we're not careful, same thing can happen. Us individually as well as a church. But the great news is God always allows us to repent. But again, the choice is up to you and to me. If the church in Laodicea would hear this challenge to get right, he would gladly restore them. But if they didn't, he's not going to kick the door down. He's going to let them do what they want to do. 
Verse 21 says, To whom who overcomes, I give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Even this slacker, backslidden church, God says, if you come back, you can still share in all the rewards. It's never too late. If you're breathing, it's never too late to come back to Christ. You're never too old, never too bad, never too good. But you have to choose. And the Bible says you have to keep on overcoming. What's the phrase? You're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into a trial. So as long as you're breathing, things are going to come up in your life that are difficult. And the Bible says you have to keep overcoming it. You keep overcoming it. You know, as a parent, you think, man, when my kids turn 18... I'm done worrying. (laughs) Yeah, spoken like a true young parent. (laughs) Because you don't ever stop worrying. Never. You have to keep on overcoming. You keep on facing every trial. You keep on facing everything that happens to you in this life. And you trust God through all of it. It's never going to stop. It's never going to slow down. It may slow down, but it's never going to stop. There'll always be something. The Bible says we have to keep on overcoming. Verse 21 and 22 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we have to be listening to what the Spirit of God is saying to each one of us. We can't rest on what God did 80 years ago or 20 years ago. The Bible says, let him hear what he's saying today to the churches. What's God saying today? What's God doing today? And what is God's plan and vision for tomorrow? How many know that God does not stop speaking to his church and his people? Now, if you're waiting for an audible voice, you might be waiting for a long time. (laughs) If you're waiting for writing on the wall, you're probably never going to see that. You know how God speaks to you? Right here. When you pray and you read, at least for me, something I may have read 50 times, today God points out one verse to me. And that's the verse. But if you think God's going to speak to you, if you don't know this, it's not going to happen. Or you may think a lot of things in your mind that aren't really godly, but you think are from God. The Holy Spirit was present to continue his vision even in the Laodicean church, if they would let him. And it means the Holy Spirit's still present here to continue on his work and over assembly. Our vision, connect, grow, serve, go, worship. Are we committed to those as much as we were in 1940 or 1974 when they built this building or 1985 or 1999? We have to be committed now as we were at the very beginning. And if we're not, the enemy is going to sneak in through the back door and get our mind focused on something that may be good, but it's going to take us away from 
what God wants us to do. Are we committed? I don't want God to say to me, hey, I knocked on your door, you didn't answer. That's for me personally and for us as a church. We want to be sure that we continue to be on fire for God, not lukewarm, not just going through the motions, but we want to be hot for God. Amen? Would you stand as we close this morning? Close your eyes and bow your head for a second if you would. And we talk a lot about having a relationship with Christ and it would be easy to assume that everybody here does have that. But I know better. I know people go to churches all the time, good churches, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. They go because it's church and they go. But it doesn't matter if you go to church. It matters if you have a relationship with Christ. Then church follows that. The Bible says every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us can no way enter heaven because of our sin. Even the best person to walk the earth is still a sinner. And we can't make it. But the Bible says that God sent Jesus to pay the debt for that sin for you and for me. And it's a gift. You don't have to do anything to, to earn it. The only thing you actually do have to do is believe it. And not just in your head, but in your heart. That the punishment and the death that Jesus died was payment for your sin and for mine. And that is the only reason that any of us will ever get to heaven. And if you don't have a time in your life when you can look back and say, you know, at this particular date or roughly this time in my life, I made that commitment to Christ and I've lived that way since then. If you can't point to a date, the Bible says we might want to check, check your calendar because maybe today's the day of salvation. Maybe today's the day you get right with God. And the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. You can be assured, you can be positive, proof positive that you're going to enter heaven when your life is over. But if you walk around with doubt, you're not sure, you think, well, that means you didn't ever make that commitment. And the reason you're here today is not because by accident or by chance, it's because God ordained you to be here. The Bible says that God is sovereign in everything. So you are here because you think someone brought you, or you're here because you think you wanted to come to church. But in reality, you're here because God needed you to be here to hear something or witness something or talk to somebody. And the reason that you're here is because he wants, he's knocking at the door of your heart. And he wants in. But the choice is yours. Jesus loves you and cares for you. He died. He already paid the price for you. The only thing he asks you is to open the door and let him into your life. If you've never done that and you want to be assured of your salvation, I want you to raise your hand right now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You can't wait for tomorrow. You can't wait for next week. Oh, I'll do it at Christmas time. No, today is the day of salvation. 
And Father, we do thank you for that day of salvation for each one of us. We thank you that we came to a point in our lives where we did the same thing. The offer was made, the, the truth was presented to us, and Father, we acknowledged it in our life, and we had our lives transformed because of your Holy Spirit now changing and making us new. And Father, everything we've done since then, our prayer has been that it's been pleasing to you. And we want to serve you, we want to love you, not, be, not to gain entrance into heaven, but because of what you've already done so that we're in heaven. Just like a child and his parent, we want you to be proud of us. We want what we do to matter in the kingdom of God. So Father, I pray your blessings upon each person here, each person who may be watching. You fill them with your spirit. Allow them to rekindle that flame in their heart and allow us to really be on fire for the things of God with a sense of urgency of what God you're doing. Lord, we see what's going on in the world right now and we do get that sense of urgency that you could return at any moment in your rapture. So we want you to find us working to that end. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each one here as we leave. Bring us back again on Wednesday as we go caroling and then Sunday again to worship you and honor you in your presence. So Lord, I commit each person to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Have a great week. See you Wednesday night caroling.